Book One, Chapter Seven of the Mill on the Floss. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. The Mill on the Floss by George Eliot. Book One, Boy and Girl. Chapter Seven. Enter the aunts and uncles. The Dodsons were certainly a handsome family, and Mrs. Clegg was not the least handsome of the sisters. As she sat in Mrs. Tulliver's armchair, no impartial observer could have denied that for a woman of fifty, she had a very comely face and figure. Though Tom and Maggie considered their aunt Clegg as the type of ugliness. It is true she despised the advantages of costume, for though, as she often observed, no woman had better clothes, it was not her way to wear her new things out before her old ones. Other women, if they liked, might have their best thread lace in every wash, but when Mrs. Clegg died, it would be found that she had better lace laid by in the right-hand drawer of her wardrobe in the spotted chamber. That ever Mrs. Wool of St. Ogg's had bought in her life, although Mrs. Wool wore her lace before it was paid for. So, of her curled fronts, Mrs. Clegg had doubtless the glossiest and crispest brown curls in her drawers, as well as curls in various degrees of fuzzy laxness. But to look out on the weekday world from under a crisp and glossy front, would be to introduce a most dreamlike and unpleasant confusion between the sacred and the secular. Occasionally, indeed, Mrs. Glegg wore one of her third best fronts on a weekday visit, but not at her sister's house, especially not at Mrs. Tulliver's, who, since her marriage, had hurt her sister's feelings greatly by wearing her own hair. Though, as Mrs. Glegg observed to Mrs. Deane, a mother of a family like Bessie, with the husband always going to law, might have been expected to know better, but Bessie was always weak. So, if Mrs. Glegg's front today was more fussy and lax than usual, she had a design under it. She intended the most pointed and cutting allusion to Mrs. Tulliver's bunches of blonde curls. Separated from each other by a due wave of smoothness on each side of the parting, Mrs. Tulliver had shed tears several times at Sister Glegg's unkindness on the subject of these unmatronly curls, but the consciousness of looking the handsomer for them naturally administered support. Mrs. Glegg chose to wear her bonnet in the house today, united and tilted slightly. Of course, a frequent practice of hers when she was on a visit, and happened to be in a severe humour. She didn't know what draughts there might be in strange houses. For the same reason, she wore a small sable tippet, which reached just to her shoulders, and was very far from meeting across her well-formed chest, while her long neck was protected by a chevaux de frise. Of miscellaneous frilling, one would need to be learned in the fashions of those times 
to know how far in the rear of them Mrs. Glegg's slate-coloured silk gown must have been, but from certain constellations of small yellow spots upon it and a mouldy odour about it, suggestive of a damp clothes chest, it was probable that it belonged to a stratum of garments just old enough to have come recently into wear. Mrs. Glegg held her large gold watch in her hand, with the many double chain round her fingers, and observed to Mrs. Tulliver, who had just returned from a visit to the kitchen, that whatever it might be by other people's clocks and watches, it was gone half-past twelve by hers. I don't know what ails sister Pullet, she continued. It used to be the way in our family for one to be as early as another. I'm sure it was so in my father's time, and not for one sister to sit half an hour before the others came. But if the ways of the family are altered, it shan't be my fault. I'll never be the one to come into a house when all the rest are going away. I wonder at Sister Deanne. She used to be more like me. But if you'll take my advice, Bessie, you'll put the dinner forward a bit, sooner than put it back, because folks are late as ought to had known better. Oh, dear, there's no fear but what they'll be all here in time, sister, said Mrs. Tulliver, in her mild peevish tone. The dinner won't be ready till half-past one, but if it's long for you to wait, let me fetch you a cheesecake and a glass of wine. Well, Bessie, said Mrs. Glegg, with a bitter smile and a scarcely perceptible toss of her head, I should have thought you'd known your own sister better. I never did eat between meals, and I'm not going to begin. Not but what I hate that nonsense of having your dinner at half-past one, when you might have it at one. You was never brought up in that way, Bessie. Why, Jane, what can I do? Mr. Tulliver doesn't like his dinner before two o'clock, but I put it half an hour earlier because of you. Yes, yes, I know how it is with husbands. Therefore putting everything off. They'll put the dinner off till after tea, if they've got wives as are weak to give in to such work. But it's a pity for you, Bessie, as you haven't got more strength of mind. It'll be well if your children don't suffer for it, and I hope you've not gone and got a great dinner for us, going to expense for your sisters, as it'd sooner eat a crust of dry bread nor help to ruin you with extravagance. I wonder you don't take pattern by your sister Diane. She's far more sensible, and here you've got two children to provide for, and your husband spent your fortune I go into law, and's likely to spend his own too. A boiled joint, as you could make broth of for the kitchen, Mrs. Clegg added, in a tone of emphatic protest, and a plain pudding with a spoonful of sugar, and no spice, it'd be far more becoming. With Sister Glegg in this humour, there was a cheerful prospect for the day. Mrs. Tulliver never went the length of quarrelling with her, any more than a waterfowl that puts out its leg in a deprecating manner can be said to quarrel with a boy who throws stones, but this point of the dinner was a tender one, and not at all new. 
so that Mrs. Tulliver could make the same answer she had often made before. Mr. Tulliver says he always will have a good dinner for his friends while he can pay for it, she said, and he's a right to do as he likes in his own house, sister. Well, Bessie, I can't leave your children enough out of my savings to keep them from ruin, and you mustn't look to have any of Mr. Glegg's money, for it's well if I don't go first. He comes of a long-lived family, and if he was to die and leave me well for my life, he'd tie all the money up to go back to his own kin. The sound of wheels while Mrs. Glegg was speaking was an interruption highly welcome to Mrs. Tulliver, who hastened out to receive Sister Pullet. It must be Sister Pullet, because the sound was that of a four-wheel. Mrs. Glegg tossed her head and looked rather sour about the mouth at the thought of the four-wheel. She had a strong opinion on that subject. Sister Pullet was in tears when the one-horse chase stopped before Mrs. Tulliver's door, and it was apparently requisite that she should shed a few more before getting out, for though her husband and Mrs. Tulliver stood ready to support her, she sat still and shook her head sadly, as she looked through her tears at the vague distance. "'Why, whatever is the matter, sister?' said Mrs. Tulliver. She was not an imaginative woman, but it occurred to her that the large toilet glass in Sister Pullet's best bedroom was possibly broken for the second time. There was no reply but a further shake of the head, as Mrs. Pullet slowly rose and got down from the chase, not without casting a glance at Mr. Pullet to see that he was guarding her handsome silk dress from injury. Mr. Pullet was a small man, with a high nose, small twinkling eyes, and thin lips, in a fresh-looking suit of black, and a white cravat, that seemed to have been tied very tight on some higher principle than that of mere personal ease. He bore about the same relation to his tall, good-looking wife, with her balloon sleeves, abundant mantle, and a large be-feathered and be-ribboned bonnet, as a small fishing smack bears to a brig with all its sails spread. It is a pathetic sight and a striking example of the complexity introduced into the emotions by a high state of civilization, the sight of a fashionably dressed female in grief, from a sorrow of a hottentot to that of a woman in large backroom sleeves, with several bracelets on each arm, an architectural bonnet, and delicate ribbon strings, what a long series of graduations, in the enlightened child of civilization, the abandonment characteristic of grief is checked and varied in the supplest manner, so as to present an interesting problem to the analytic mind. If, with a crushed heart and eyes half-blinded by the mist of tears, she were to walk with a too devious step through a door place, she might crush her backroom sleeves too, and the deep consciousness of this possibility produces a composition of forces by which she takes a line that just clears the door post. Perceiving that the tears are hurrying fast, she unpins her strings and throws them languidly backward, 
a touching gesture, indicative, even in the deepest gloom, of the hope in future dry moments when cap strings will once more have a charm. As the tears subside a little, and with her head leaning backward at the angle that will not injure her bonnet, she endures that terrible moment when grief, which has made all things else a weariness, has itself become weary. She looks down pensively at her bracelets and adjusts their clasps with that pretty studied fortuity which would be gratifying to her mind if it were once more in a calm and healthy state. Mrs. Pullet brushed each door post with great nicety about the latitude of her shoulders. At that period a woman was truly ridiculous to an instructed eye if she did not measure a yard and a half across the shoulders, and having done that sent muscles of her face in quest of fresh tears as she advanced into the parlour where Mrs. Glegg was seated. "'Well, sister, you're late. What's the matter?' said Mrs. Glegg, rather sharply, as they shook hands. Mrs. Pullet sat down, lifting up her mantle carefully behind before she answered. "'She's gone,' unconsciously using an impressive figure of rhetoric. "'It isn't the glass this time, then,' thought Mrs. Tulliver. "'Died the day before yesterday,' continued Mrs. Pullet, "'and her legs were as thick as my body,' she added, "'with deep sadness after a pause. "'They've tapped her no end of times, "'and the water, they say you might have swum in it, if you liked. "'Well, Sophie,' "'It's a mercy she's gone, then, whoever she may be,' said Mrs. Glegg, with the promptitude and emphasis of a mind naturally clear and decided. "'But I can't think who you're talking of, for my part.' "'But I know,' said Mrs. Pullet, sighing and shaking her head, "'and there isn't another such a dropsy in the parish. "'I know as it's old Mrs. Sutton of the Twenty Lands.' "'Well,' "'She's no kin of yours, nor much acquaintance as I've ever heard of,' said Mrs. Glegg, who always cried just as much as was proper when anything happened to her own kin, but not on other occasions. "'She's so much acquaintance as I've seen her legs when they was like bladders, and an old lady as had doubled her money over and over again and kept it all in her own management to the last.' and had her pocket with her keys in, under a pillow constant. There isn't many old parishioners like her, I doubt. And they say she took as much physic as at fill a wagon, observed Mr. Pullet. Ah, sighed Mrs. Pullet. She'd another complaint ever so many years before. She had the dropsy, and the doctors couldn't make out what it was. And she said to me, when I went to see her last Christmas, she said, Mrs. Pullet, if ever you have the dropsy, you'll think of me. She did say so, added Mrs. Pullet, beginning to cry bitterly again. Those were her very words. And she's to be buried a Saturday, and Pullet's bid to do the funeral. Sophie, said Mrs. Glegg, unable any longer to contain her spirit of rational remonstrance. "'Sophie, I wonder at you fretting and injuring your health about people as don't belong to you. 
Your poor father never did so, nor your aunt Frances neither, nor any of the family as I ever heard of. You couldn't fret no more than this, if we'd heard as our cousin Abbott had died sudden, without making his will.' 